Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our uh, Sunday School time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. And we are in the midst of our survey through the Old Testament. We're in 1st and 2nd Kings and 2nd Chronicles. We've entitled uh, this section of the study, Israel's Kings and Prophets. So today we're up to Lesson 18. We're going to be focusing on 2nd Kings chapter 13 verse 1 through 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 29, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 through 28. Now, we've entitled today's lesson, Jehu's Sons and Amaziah. Now, the reason why is because we're going to be looking at four kings, three of which are from the northern kingdom, and they are the sons and the descendants of Jehu, who, if you remember, was the one who killed the household of Ahab and became king of Israel. Then we're also going to look now at the son of the Judean king, king of Judah, which is Amaziah. We're going to look at him who is the son of Jehoash. So let's take a look today. We're going to start off, first of all, in chapter 13. And we're the first nine verses are kind of focused on the first king, Jehoahaz, and uh, so we're going to see what it says here. So when you look at the passage, the first thing you're going to notice is, is that in the 23rd year of Jehoash's reign as king of Judah. Okay, so remember, some of these kings, they have similar names across both kingdoms, and we're going to see that here as well. So in the 23rd year of the king of Judah, whose name is Jehoash, Jehoahaz became the king and reigned 17 years in Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as he walked according to the sins of Jeroboam. Now, let me just remind you, the house of Ahab walked in the sins of Jeroboam, but they also worshipped Baal. So when you see any of the descendants, they'll say, who walked, in accordance with Ahab and Jezebel. Well, remember, Jehu did not worship Baal. He actually eradicated or tried to eradicate Baal from the northern kingdom, but he fell to the sin of Jeroboam, which was the two calves that were golden calves. And he and remember, Jeroboam said, look, Israel, here are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now, <clears throat> this king... Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Jehu's son, is basically continuing in that sin. Now remember, the reason why they did this is because they were un under this belief that if they had these centers of worship, the people of the northern kingdom would stay in the northern kingdom rather than making their pilgrimages to Jerusalem to the temple as was prescribed by the, the, the Old Testament law. So you see now that Jehoaz is continuing in this evil. Now, now the anger of the Lord was aroused and he delivered Israel into the hand of Haziel. Remember Haziel? He was anointed to be the king of Syria and he suffocated his king who was Ben-Hadad. He suffocated him, assumed the role of Syria. And remember Elisha, when he anointed him to be king, wept because he knew the damage and the destruction that Haziel was going to do to Israel. And so the Lord is using 
Haziel to basically discipline Israel for its sin. So Jehoahaz sought the Lord's deliverance, and the Lord listened as he saw Israel's oppression. So this is typically the format of what happens here in the Old Testament. Israel, the people of Israel, sin. God brings an oppressor. There is an oppression and a suppression of the people. The people then cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears their pleas, their cries. He sees their oppression. He remembers the covenant that he made with Israel, with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he provides a deliverer. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in this situation. The Lord provided Israel with a deliverer who freed them from the oppression of Syria. So God raises up a deliverer. So this is some type of military leader, similar to the type of leader maybe that you would see in the book of Judges, a judge, someone to deliver Israel from the oppression of Syria. Now, I think it's interesting to note here that all the text says is that God raised up a deliverer. And it's obvious that it's not the king, because the king is the one who sought the Lord, but God raised up a deliverer. But we don't know anything else about him. The text doesn't focus on who the deliverer is. The focus is it rather focuses on the God who delivered them through the deliverer. Do you understand what I'm saying? So God provided Israel with a deliverer who freed them from the oppression of Syria. Now, you would think, okay, wonderful, as in the book of Judges, they'll turn back to the Lord until the next generation. <clears throat> nope, that's not what happens here. However, Israel did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam and kept the wooden images. Now, the wooden images, folks, are the Ashtaroth poles. Again, part of the gods of the Canaanites who were in the land before they were expelled. So, what I want you to see is, is that nothing changes. God delivers them. He delivers them because of his concern for them and because of his covenant. But they continue in their rebellion against God. So the text then goes on and tells us that even in spite of their deliverance, they really don't end up in a good place. What do you mean? Well, the text tells us that all that remained of Israel's army were 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. You say, well, that sounds like a, a big army. No, no, if you think about it, that's not, considering when we look at later and we've seen before that they're able to raise an army of 100,000 or more, 150,000, and with that, huge numbers of horsemen and chariots. But now they're only reduced down to 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, and they have 10,000 foot soldiers. They're not in a good place. So then the writer of Kings lists where the details of Jehoahaz's reign are recorded. As we've seen always through both Kings and Chronicles, at the end of the discussion concerning that king, there will be a statement of where you can find the record of this king. And the record of this king it was kept in a Chronicles of the of the northern kingdom, which is not part of our scripture, and we don't have that text for us to examine. So it then says that Jehoahaz died and was buried in Samaria as they made his son Jehoash 
king in his place. So again, he dies. His son then, Jehoash, becomes king and they make him king over the northern kingdom. Well, that brings us now to our second king that we're going to look at, and that's found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 10 through 25, and that's the discussion of Jehoash. Now, when you look at this passage, I'm just going to be honest with you, you're going to see Jehoash mentioned, but the focus of the passage really isn't on Jehoash. It's on the prophet Elijah. So let's take a look together. So, in the 37th year of Jehoash's reign as king of Judah. So in the 37th, when the Jehoash in Judah is reigning as king, in his 37th year of reigning, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, becomes king in the northern kingdom, and he only reigns for 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as he walked according to the sins of Jeroboam. So again, like his father and his grandfather before him, he's continuing in the sin of Jeroboam, continuing to mislead the country concerning who God is, and they're worshiping these golden calf idols. Now, the text then shifts to Elijah, because what we see now is Jehoash wept over Elisha because he became sick and was dying. So what we see happening here is Jehoash hears that Elijah is sick, he goes and visits him, goes in to see him, and he's weeping over the prophet because he is sick and dying. So obviously, let's stop for a moment. You remember the house of Ahab and what they thought of Elijah? Oh, you enemy. So there was an animosity towards the house of Ahab towards the prophets. Well, naturally so. The house of Ahab sought to kill the prophets. That hasn't been true in the house of Jehu. In the house of Jehu, while they are not doing right in the sight of the Lord, there's still a respect and a reliance upon the prophets of the Lord. And so you here you have this major prophet of the Lord who is on his deathbed, who is sick and dying, and the king comes to visit him and is weeping over him. Now, here's what happens. It's an interesting interaction that takes place. Elijah told the king to take a bow and some arrows. So he tells him, take a bow and some arrows. And probably that would have been available from any of the men. He would have soldiers with him. The king would just take a bow and some arrows. Then the king was told to place his hands on the bow and Elisha placed his hands on the king's. So the, the king was told, take the bow, put your hands on it. Then Elisha puts his hands on top of the king's hands. <clears throat> the king was then told to open the east window and shoot an arrow through it. So obviously in the house that they were in, there was a window facing to the east. The king's told, open that window, shoot an arrow out of the window. So Elisha proclaimed it was the Lord's arrow of deliverance from Syria. So what's happening here is Elisha is using these things 
as symbols to communicate the truth of God. So, all right, take the bow. He puts the bow on. He says, open the east window, shoot an arrow through it. That arrow, and it's heading to the east. Why? Because Syria was to the east. That arrow is the Lord's arrow of deliverance. It doesn't stop there. Let's go on. Elisha told the king that Israel must strike the Syrians at Aphek till they are destroyed. So Aphek was a place we've seen before where there has been battles before. And so again, there's going to be a battle this time against the Syrians. And Elisha told the king, you go there and you strike the Syrians until they are destroyed. Basically, he just told him that the arrow is the arrow of God's deliverance. All right, let's continue on. Elisha then told the king to take the arrows and strike the ground. So he was to take the arrows that he had and strike the ground. All right, strike the ground. So the king struck the ground with the arrows three times. And Elisha became angry. So he's told to strike the ground. He's not told how many times to strike the ground. He's told to strike the ground. So the king, obviously, who knows why, he strikes it three times. And Elisha the prophet becomes angry. Well, we're going to find out why he becomes angry. Elisha told the king that he should have struck the ground five or six times. So basically, he was like, you should have hit the ground more. Here's why. He explained that Israel would have destroyed Syria, but they will only strike them three times. So the striking of the ground with the arrows was representative of how many times Israel would defeat Syria. So he's saying, if you had struck the ground five or six times, you would have utterly destroyed Syria. But he didn't. What does he do? He strikes the ground three times. So Elisha is upset and he says, well, you're only going to be able to strike them three times. Then it says that Elisha died and they buried him. So that's it. We don't see Elisha anymore. Not like his mentor, Elijah, who was taken up to be with heaven. But we see that Elisha now, the great prophet of the northern kingdom, is dead. Now, there is an interesting story that's put in here, and it's, again, concerning something miraculous that happens with Elisha. Well, you're saying, well, wait a minute a second, George. Isn't Elisha dead? Yes, but that doesn't mean God can't do miracles. So the text tells us that the Moabite raiding parties invaded the land. Which land? The land of the northern kingdom. So the Moabites were raiding, which is what the nations would do. They would raid and loot the land. And so here they are, they're raiding the northern kingdom. As a man was being buried, a raiding party was spotted, and they put the body in Elisha's tomb. <clears throat> so here they are, they're, they're having a burial according to their customs. They see a raiding party, so they figure, well, we got to get him somewhere to put the body in with Elisha's bones in his tomb, basically because they're fearing for their lives because they're afraid that the raiding party would come over and kill them. Well, when the body touched the bones of Elisha, the man revived and he stood up. 
So here's a guy who's dead. When they put his dead body into the tomb, his body touches the bones of Elisha. He comes back to life and he stands up. Elisha's final miracle. Final miracle. Then it goes on and tells us that Haziel of Syria oppressed Israel during the reign of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to Israel. So even though Haziel was oppressing the nation, the northern kingdom, God was still gracious to them. Why? The Lord had compassion because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered the covenant that he made. Listen, here's folks, you need to understand. When you enter into a covenant with God, he is the one who fulfills it. It is based on him, not on you. And you can tell that with, with Israel. It's not based on Israel. Otherwise, God could have been able to walk away from it. But he's in a covenant with Israel because he made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jehoash recaptured from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all of the cities lost to Syria. So because God had compassion, during the reign of Jehoash, the king of Israel, he was able to recapture all the cities lost to Syria, except this time it's Hazael's son, whose name, by the way, is Ben-Hadad. Isn't that interesting? He killed the original Ben-Hadad, but he names his son Ben-Hadad. But the text doesn't tell us why that happens. That's just the information you have here. So Jehoash defeated Ben-Hadad three times. Remember that? That's what he struck the ground with the arrows three times. He only defeated him three times in accordance with the word. So now we come to chapter 14 of 2 Kings. We're going to look at verses 1 to 22, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 to 26. Now, I need to again point out to you, because we're looking at two different passages, each writer is going to point out something a little bit different to help us to understand what's going on. So now we're going to look at Amaziah, the king of Judah. Now, he's going to start off strong, but he doesn't end there. And I guess there's some lessons for you and I. You can start off strong, but it's possible to go off track. And that's what we're going to see here with this king, Amaziah. So here's what I want you to notice. In the second year of Jehoahaz's reign as king of Israel, Amaziah became king of Judah. So in the second year of Jehoahaz, Amaziah becomes king of Judah. Now Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he ruled Judah 29 years. So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing here's a king who starts off at 25, but he reigns in Judah for 29 years. So it's a good long reign. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord like his father Jehoash, but not like David. All right, now look, remember remember Jehoash, he started out strong as well because he was influenced 
by the high priest until the high priest died at an old age of 130. Then he went off the rails. So in a way, it's kind of foreshadowing the reign of Amaziah. Amaziah is going to start out strong, but he's going off the rails, kind of like his dad. But he's not as faithful in his walk like King David was, his great-great-great-great-grandfather. All right, let's go on. The chronicler, when you go to Chronicles, it tells you why. The chronicler records that he did not walk with a loyal heart. So here, here's what it's saying. It's saying that Amaziah, well, he did write in the sight of the Lord, like his dad, but not like his grandfather, David, because he didn't walk with a loyal heart. He wasn't totally committed. That's what it means here to have a loyal heart. He wasn't totally committed to the Lord. And we're going to see that later on with some of his actions. Okay? So let's continue on now. And again, it's going to point out, here's how serious they were about the Lord because the high places were not taken down and the people continued to sacrifice on them. So they continued to make their sacrifices in these high places and they continued to offer incense. Because they're not supposed to do that. Why? Because there's only one place to worship the Lord, which was where? The temple in Jerusalem. All right, let's go on. When the kingdom was secure in his hands, Amaziah had his father's killers executed. All right, so obviously, remember, his father had been murdered by two servants. So there would be a, an element of chaos and establishing who the king is, when it talks about his kingdom being secure, obviously his father would have had more than one son. So in the reality, when everyone's sure that Amaziah is the king, guess what? He passes judgment on those who killed his father and he has them executed. Now here's the interesting thing that he does. Amaziah did not execute the killer's children in accordance with the law of Moses. Here's what would have normally have happened. We've actually seen this happen before. Is that what would happen is, is that the person who sinned or who did wrong would be executed and then they would wipe out his entire family. In this situation, the killers who killed the king, they are executed, but they didn't execute their families. Why? Well, the law of Moses told them that one generation's sin could not be carried over to the next generation. The next generation wasn't responsible for the prior generation. And that's what we're seeing happening here. So he did not execute the killer's children. Now, Amaziah gathered a large army from Judah and Benjamin. Now remember, the southern kingdom of Judah is basically two tribes. The biggest tribe being, of course, Judah, and the small tribe, which is Benjamin. The northern kingdom of Israel is the ten northern tribes. All right, so he's gathering this large army. He also hired a 100,000 warriors from Israel for a 100 talents of silver. So he hired a 100,000 mercenary warriors, soldiers, from the northern kingdom. Now, a prophet 
So again, we're seeing the role of the prophet here. A prophet warned the king to send the troops back to Israel or the Lord will bring defeat. So he's basically saying, look, you go and send these guys back. And if you don't, if you use them, God's going to allow whoever you're attacking, which are the Edomites, he's going to give them the victory. So you need to send them back. The king asked about the silver and the prophet responded, the Lord is able to give much more. So obviously the king's going to say, well, what about the hundred talents of silver that I gave them? And the prophet says, God is able to more than make up for what you did. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. God is basically telling the king, you're doing wrong by hiring the northern kingdom. Why? Because they're not totally devoted to the Lord up there. They're still following after the sin of Jeroboam. God has marked them for destruction. Now, what I want you to see now is there's going to be some consequences, and we're going to see that here soon, consequences for the king of Judah bringing these 100,000 men into Judah. All right, so let's go on. So he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and then turned his attention to Israel. So what he does is he takes the troops that he has, he goes and attacks Edom in the Valley of Salt, and we've seen that we've been in the Valley of Salt before for, for battles, and what happens? 10,000 are killed, and so he experiences a victory. So now he turns his attention to Israel. Why does he do that? Well, we're going to see part of the reason why here in just a few seconds. If the troops Amaziah sent back to Israel raided Judah, killing 3,000 and taking much spoil. So here's the mistake he made. By bringing down this 100,000 troops from Israel, even though he's not going to use them and he sends them back to the northern kingdom, guess what they do, guys? They do the raiding thing. They raid throughout Judah and they kill over 3,000 people and they take lots of loot, lots of spoil back to Israel. So obviously there's going to be some anger, some resentment, and there's going to be a desire for some payback. That's why it said earlier, especially kings, that he turned his attention to the northern kingdom. So Amaziah, here's the big mistake he makes. Remember I told you that he starts out strong? He starts out in a good place, but he ends up going bad. Well, here's what he did. Amaziah brought back the gods of Edom to Jerusalem and worshipped them. So remember, the gods of Edom, who were supposed to be the gods of the army that he's facing, he defeats that army. You would think, oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who is winning the victory. Everything's going to be great. Isn't our God great? No, what does he do? He goes and gets the God of the people who were just defeated, and he brings them back to Jerusalem. The text says he sets them up, and he begins to make sacrifices to these gods. He begins to worship them. He engages in idolatry. Does not make any sense, does it? Doesn't make any sense at all. So here's what happens. God sends a prophet. A prophet asked Amaziah why he worshipped the same gods who could not rescue Edom. That's a pretty, pretty 
logical question. Why in the world are you worshiping the gods that couldn't even keep the nation that worships them safe? Why are you worshiping them? Now here's where it goes bad. The king silenced the prophet asking who made him a counselor and why should he die? So the king basically shuts him up and says, hey, who, who made you the royal counselor here? And do you really need to die today because of what you're telling me? What's going on here? Well, he's threatening the life of this prophet. So here's what happens. The prophet ceased his message saying that God has determined to destroy the king. So basically he stopped but got one last word. He got the last word. Hey, by the way, king, God's determined to destroy you. And that's what we're going to see that happens. Here's what goes on. So Kings tells us that he sent, as well as Chronicles, that he sent a message to Jehoash to meet him in battle. So he sends a message to the king of the, of the northern kingdom, to the king of Israel, and, and, and challenges him to meet him in battle. Well, Jehoash, here's what he does. He replied with a parable telling Amaziah to stay home. Basically, his parable is saying, whoa, you know, wait a minute now. Are you sure you want to do this? Now, here's, wh here's what it says here. I want you to see it. <clears throat> Look at verse 9 of chapter 14 in 2 Kings. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife, and a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the sisal. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted up, lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? So basically, he's describing the Judah as the thistle, and Israel as being the cedar and he says hey a wild beast comes by and just tramples you stay at home why would you invite trouble it's a warning however Amaziah did not heed the warning and was defeated by Israel <laughs> he didn't he didn't listen so he goes up and beats him in battle and he loses in fact he doesn't just lose Jehoash captured Amaziah, broke down the wall at Jerusalem, and plundered the city. It says he took all the gold and silver from the palace and from the temple. I mean, he plundered them good, broke down a huge section of the wall of Jerusalem, which would made the city defenseless, and he captured the king of Judah. Now the text then, the writer of Kings, lists where the details of Jehoash's reign are recorded. So then the text, because we're looking at kings, wants to tell us that Jehoash, the king of Israel, died. And here's where you can find out his information. Jehoash was buried with his fathers in Samaria, and his son Jeroboam became king. This is what the first, this king would be known as Jeroboam II. Remember, the first Jeroboam was the one who led the rebellion 
and led the ten nations to succeed from King Solomon. This is the son of Jehu, great-grandson whose name is Jeroboam. So let's go on. The writer of Kings lists where, lists where the details of Amaziah's reign are recorded. So we're going to see now where we can we see the recording of where Amaziah's reign is recorded. Now, it also goes on and tells us, both texts tell us, that a conspiracy was formed against Amaziah, and he fled to Lachish, where he was killed. So obviously now, just like his dad, remember his dad was murdered in a conspiracy. Things are not going well for the nation. So what do you do? You've got to, got to get rid of the guy that's bringing problems. And trust me, folks, the destruction of Jerusalem's wall, the plundering of the city, even the king being captured at one point, that doesn't go over well with people. And they are forming a conspiracy to get rid of him. So... They follow him to Lachish, and they kill him there. So the text tells us that they brought Amaziah's body back to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb of his fathers. So they at least buried him in the tomb of his fathers. Now, the people took Amaziah's son, Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. You're saying, Uzziah, I've heard that name before. Well, if you think for a moment, Isaiah chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in his temple high and lifted up. And remember that? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, I believe. So this is the Uzziah that we're talking about here. It also says that Uzziah, we're going to look at him a little bit more next week, Uzziah restored and rebuilt uh, Eloth to Judah after the death of his father. So he restored and rebuilt Eloth. In the 15th year, we're going to come now to the final king that we're looking at, getting back to the northern kingdom. We're going to look at Jeroboam II. Now, not much is recorded here, although there are some interesting things we need to take note of. And we're going to find his record in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. So in the 15th year of Amaziah's reign as king of Judah, Jeroboam became king and reigned 41 years. Now this is what's interesting to me. Here's a guy who's reigning in the northern kingdom for 41 years. We don't see much of his reign recorded here as we have some of the other kings who had maybe not as many years, but he's the king and he reigns for 41 years. And again, like his fathers in the house of Jehu, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as he walked according to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Okay, this is the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And this Jeroboam is continuing in the same sin. Jeroboam restored the territory to Israel because the Lord saw Israel's affliction. So he was able to regain all of the territory that the northern kingdom had lost during his reign. 
Now, this was in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jonah. Now, have you ever heard of a prophet by the name of Jonah? It's from the book of Jonah. He's one of the minor prophets, a pre-exilic prophet. What do you mean pre-exilic? Well, the prophets can fall into three categories. That is, those prophets who were before the exile, they're pre-exilic. And then there are the exilic prophets. Those are the prophets who, who prophesied during the exile. And then there are the post-exilic prophets. Those are the prophets who, who prophesied, and we have books from them, who prophesied after the return back to, to Israel, the post-exilic prophets. So here we see Jonah is mentioned. So that helps you to understand when you read the book of Jonah and its four chapters, you can realize that he served the Lord during the reign of Jeroboam, the second in the northern kingdom. So he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Now, the text goes on, because of this prophecy that was given through Jonah, the Lord did not say that he would blot out Israel's name from under heaven. So he saved them. So you say, wait a minute, George, you said that he marked them for destruction later. Yes, if you remember, during the reign of Jeroboam the first, there was the prophecy that was given that they would be destroyed because they turned away from the Lord and be sent into exile. But that doesn't mean that they would be wiped out completely. And that's what this text is saying. God had not said that he would blot out their name under heaven. It's not, they're, going, they're going, still going to exist. So because of that, he saves them during this time. The writer of Kings then lists where the details of Jeroboam's reign are recorded. So once again, he's going to list where the reign of Jeroboam's reign is known and can be found. So Jeroboam was buried with his fathers in Samaria and his son Zechariah became king. Now again, this is not the prophet Zechariah, but this is the one of the sons of Jehu who becomes king over the northern kingdom. And so that brings us to the end of our lesson today, lesson 18. Next week, we're going to continue on in our study of the kings. We're getting towards where we're working our way towards the end of the northern kingdom because ultimately they will be destroyed and taken into exile. And then the shift from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is completely on, 2 Chronicles is completely there anyhow, on the southern kingdom of Judah.